We are starting a new series today in the Gospel of John. We started the Gospel of John last week and looked at what's called the prologue, the introductory part of the Gospel of John. Now we're going to get into the kind of the meat of the book, and it has to do with signs. Um, Gospel of John has far fewer miracles than any of the other Gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are just chock full of miracles. John... Not near as much. Matter of fact, there are exactly seven. Jesus performed seven miracles in the Gospel of John. And John, that's, that's not a coincidence, or it's not by accident or happenstance. As a matter of fact, he gets us counting. Uh, what was just read for us, the miracle at Cana and Galilee, the miracle of the wedding, of the water to wine, the very last verse of that says, this was the first sign that Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. So we're kind of given a clue. All right, number one. You get to the second miracle, which we're not going to get into as much because uh, I'm not going to be presenting the lesson during the... Let me say this before I get started. Next week, we're having two services. We're having an early service, um, 8.30. Is that... I think we'll go 8.30 to 9.30 with the first service for those that want to go on the trail ride. Next Sunday is Trail Ride Sunday. We didn't do this last year in the midst of COVID and everything. It all kind of fell apart. This year, we're going to do Trail Ride Sunday again. So if you want to do that, uh, we will have an early service from 8.30 to 9.30. Then we'll go together and get on the trail ride, which starts at 10 o'clock. Is that right, Tex? Is my timing correct? How oh, he stepped out for a second. All right. Well, I believe the trail ride starts at 10, and so the normal Bible class and worship time will be after that. But I'm going on the trail ride because I've never done it before. So I'm going to do the early service. Brian Hunt will be preaching for us in the, uh, the later service this coming week. This isn't an all-the-time thing. This is just next week. But anyway, because of that, I'm going to make mention of the first and the second sign in the Gospel of John. The first sign is the miracle in Cana and Galilee with the water to wine. The second one is the healing of the official's son. That's later on. And the official uh, goes to Jesus. Jesus goes back to Cana and Galilee. He's in the same town again. And the official comes to him and says, My son is at home sick. He's about to die. Can't you please do something? Jesus says, Unless you see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. And the father completely ignores him and says, please heal my son. And Jesus says, go home, your son will be well. And when he goes, on the way home, he meets his servants who are coming to get him. And they say, your son's healed. And he said, well, what time was it? And he said, exactly the same time that he was talking to Jesus and Jesus said he would be healed. And then at the end of that story, in chapter 3, we're told specifically, this is the second sign that Jesus performed. At Cana and Galilee. So John is getting our minds to start counting. And if we keep counting the rest of the book, we find out that there's seven. Seven miracles. And each miracle, John doesn't even call them a miracle. He calls them signs. Because signs point to something. You'll notice my signpost here. The very first miracle... In the Gospel of John, and that he tells us is number one is water to wine. And each sign that Jesus performs 
points to the cross. This is going to be a uh, very uniform signpost. Every single thing I hang up here is going to point to the cross. Because that's what John does. These seven signs he's picked out for the purpose of telling us about Jesus and showing he did miracles, of course, but John specifically selects these seven and then spends time talking about each one. That's the way John does his book, is that Matthew, he clustered everything in threes. Uh, Three miracles, three parables, three lessons, three more miracles, and that's just kind of how Matthew organized his gospel. John has this big layout of these seven signs that are going to unfold on the way to the cross. And with that, each one, he usually stops and pauses and teaches for a while directly regarding the sign. This is really evident whenever we get to the story of the healing of the blind man because Jesus spends then the next chapter and a half arguing with the Pharisees about their blindness after he heals the man born blind. Or you have the uh, healing of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the final sign before you get to the cross. And Jesus talks about, I am the resurrection and the life. So Jesus, when he performs a sign in John, he also spends some time explaining it or showing us or teaching us how it points to God the Father and how it points to God the Father revealed through the Son on the cross. And this first miracle has several little points which kind of tease us a little bit. For instance, we're told this happened on the third day. If we've read our gospel accounts before, we know the third day is significant. He rose from the grave on the third day. So John just throws out the little thing of on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And who's there? His mother. Guess who's also at the cross? His mother. You know what he calls his mother in this story? Woman. Now, we think that's kind of disrespectful. Actually, it was very respectful in Jesus' day and age, to use a term like that. A little bit awkward because it was his mom. It's not usually how someone talked to his mom, but it was a respectful way for a man to address a woman in public, to say woman. And so he says, woman, what do I have to do with you? On the cross, when he's hanging on the cross, he says, woman, behold your son. And he's not talking about him. He's actually saying, The person standing next to you will be your son from now on. He'll take you home and take care of you. And that was the gospel writer, John, writing this book, whom Jesus entrusts her to. But there are many parallels of this very first sign and to what happens later. Little parallels. But then there's some big points I think John's trying to make as well if we kind of have eyes to see what he's doing. John is an amazing writer. He's very simple. Uh, I took Greek in college. I remember almost none of it. But one thing that we did, when we started translating any scriptures, we always went to John, our first John, our second John, our third John, because John was simple. John is kind of like the primer readers of elementary, as far as it's very simple sentences, very simple vocabulary. It's almost like see Dick and Jane run. I mean, that, that's, he's that simple and straightforward. It's not complicated sentences. But even with the simplicity of his sentences and of his words and his vocabulary, he's deep. 
He's pulling all this imagery in and crafting very carefully these very simple sentences, pointing out little things and then also big things that are there on purpose. I, I feel like John poured over this with the Holy Spirit, of course, inspiring him and helping, but that the Gospel of John was a labor of love and he's crafting this beautiful, tight-knit story in very simple-to-understand terms. But if, if any Bible... This is true of the entire Bible. It's especially true of John. It's shallow enough for a mouse to wade but an elephant to drown, if you've heard that term before about Scripture. Anybody can read it. Anybody can read it and see Jesus. But there's enough there to get lost in for a lifetime. You can come to it on a shallow way and get something out of it, but you can bury yourself into it and be overwhelmed. And that's John. And that's the entire Bible, but even more so. It's this amazing writer named John. And these seven signs, they point the way. He, kinda, he, he, he builds his whole gospel account on the progression of these seven signs, and they intensify over time. They kind of get stronger and bigger and bolder and the people and the religious leaders get more upset and you kind of get this snowball effect rolling downhill is getting bigger and of course we know the end. He gets crucified and then he rises from the grave. But these seven signs are kind of leading us there. And this first one, water to wine. And I guess it's just a little caveat, and we can, if you want to discuss this later, let's discuss this later, by all means, but I think it was alcoholic wine. There. Um, the fact that it mentions people getting drunk, I think, makes that fairly obvious, but I think Jesus made alcoholic wine. Uh, they didn't care near as much in that time, or most of the places around the world, for that matter, about alcoholic wine as Southerners in the United States and the Bible Belt do. So... Um, that doesn't mean go out and get drunk. Not saying that at all. <laughs> Jesus didn't say go out and get drunk. But I think he made regular old-fashioned wine. That, but he made really good wine. Is a point that John actually, I think, says on purpose. Or says to mean something significant. I'll say that. But let's look at a few things Jesus does say or that John tells us. And the first one I want to look at specifically... The big one is, he says, my time is not yet come. He says, woman, my time is not yet come, talking to his mother. She wants him to do something. He's hesitant. He's actually hesitant with the first two miracles. He's hesitant with Mary, his mother. He's also hesitant with the official who wants his son healed over at the end of chapter 3. And uh, he is slowly, again, the snowball is just starting out slow. Things are just getting going. They're going to be full steam ahead by the time it gets to the bottom, by the time it gets to the cross. But now it's, we're, we're just kind of barely working into it now. And he says this phrase, my time has not yet come, something he'll say several times in the Gospel of John. And as we hang more signs up here and go through the, the signs and miracles that John tells us about, each one is getting closer to the cross, but he emphasizes, and the Gospel of John, the writer, from a narrator point of view, also emphasizes, it's getting close, but the time's not there yet. The time is coming. The time has not yet come. He keeps on using this language until you get to John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying right before he's arrested, and he finally says it. 
my time has come. He said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son as I glorify you. So, again, we're introduced from this very early stage. We're building up. That there's something coming that's the center and the focus of the story. And we're not there yet. But it's coming. And that's what this phrase, my time has not yet come, is all about. That there's coming a moment in this book. When Jesus, and we talked about this a little bit in Bible class, that God himself will be revealed through Jesus. He will be glorified. He will show the very essence and character of who God is perfectly. And that happens on the cross. Until then, we're building up to it. Until then, his time has not yet come. But when his time has come, John's telling us we're with the climax, the big point he's going to emphasis, emphasize the cross. That's Jesus' time. That's Jesus' hour. Time whenever he fulfills his task. And then you get this little detail about the stone jars. So there's these six stone jars sitting around this house, wherever they're having this wedding banquet. And these stone jars are specifically told. Again, John doesn't waste words. He doesn't just say things to say them. If he gives us details, pay attention. Those details might be significant. And he says these six stone water jars were used for ceremonial cleansing. The Jews were big on ceremonial cleansing. God was pretty big on ceremonial cleansing. He wrote books like Leviticus and other passages that are just full of ways to make sure that you're ceremonially clean. Because you weren't supposed to go to the temple. You weren't supposed to pretty much interact with people too much. If you were unclean, you had to go through steps to go from unclean to clean. And so they had... And, and, and the traditions and the expectations had grown over time. So you have what's in the Old Testament. You have what's in Exodus and Leviticus and other passages about being ceremonially clean. But you give something a few hundred years or a few millennia, in this case, a few thousand years, and you're going to make some extra traditions. And the Jews had. And the Pharisees specifically and the religious leaders had made lots of extra traditions. They were washing their hands all day long. And they weren't washing their hands because of germs. They didn't know what germs were. But they were washing their hands because they wanted to be clean in the presence of God. And they wouldn't just wash their hands. Matthew chapter 23 talks about how they'll wash their cups and their bowls. Again, something we do all the time. We have a dishwasher. We put them in and does it for us. But you know, they spend all this time washing... And Jesus even talks about this. You wash the inside of the cup, but the outside of the you wash the, the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup's dirty. He's pointing out hypocrisy. But they didn't again wash them because they were worried about germs and they didn't have dawn or you know any of that stuff, palm olive. They just washed it because they were obsessed with this idea of being ceremonially pure. And actually it says they would dip the cup. You know what word dip is? Baptize. They baptize their dishes. And that's probably more along the lines of what we... And that's kind of ridiculous, but that's how ridiculous it had gotten to the point of just about that they were worried about their dishes being ceremonially and spiritually pure, so they baptized those two before they used them. 
Now, we, we baptize people for the forgiveness of their sins and to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. And we believe something's going on there, but I don't need to baptize this microphone. It wouldn't work very well if I did. You know, it's just stuff. But they were so obsessed with everything because the ceremonially pure and clean had just kind of gotten so deeply embedded into their consciousness and into their culture. They did it all the time. So in this house, there are six stone jars just laying around and their sole function is make stuff ceremonially pure. And that's a little bit over the top, but there they stand. And so they usually contained water for the purpose of ceremonial purification. And they're empty right now, but Jesus says, go fill them up. They do the fill them up to the very top, we're told. He says, get a ladle, get, get a server, get a whatever, a you know, cup to scoop out a little bit. They do, they take it to the, to the steward over the wedding, to the uh, kind of the host of the whole ordeal. And he doesn't know where it came from, we're told, but he takes a drink and he's impressed. He goes, hmm, this is good. You save the best to last. But the fact that it came from those stone jars, I think, is significant. I think John's, again, using this as a bit of a symbol for the old way of doing things, the old, somewhat legalistic way of doing things, Worried about being ceremonially pure and clean. Jesus takes that and transforms that and changes that into something wholly new and different. And something beautiful. Something amazing. Something that lifts the heart. Psalm 104 has this line about wine. I want to turn that real fast. Psalm 104, verse, I looked it up, but I should have written it down. All right, so verse 14, he, that is God, provides grass for the cattle. That's what he does. He blesses people. He blesses even the animals. And crops for the people to cultivate. All of this is from God. So they can produce food from the ground as well as wine that makes people feel so good, is my translation, or literally that lifts the heart. So here we're told wine actually comes from God. And oil so that they can make their faces shine, as well as food that sustains them. So we have all these blessings of God that the psalmist is talking about, but wine lifts the heart. Now obviously you can overdo it and get drunk, and there's many biblical warnings about not doing that. But inherently, the ancient world, the Bible times of Jesus' day especially, viewed wine as good. It lifted the heart. It was for those moments of celebration and like a wedding feast. And so you have this ceremonial water that just is a job and it's work and you've got to wash everything to make the people over there happy. If you don't do it right, they're going to complain like they did with Jesus a few times. How come you don't wash 
It's one to ask the disciples of Jesus. How come, you know, your master doesn't wash, you doesn't wash. Why not? Everybody washes. And not just washes their hands, you know, before they eat, but like the ceremonial cleansing here. And that's what they're so obsessed with. And it's become a burden. Jesus changes it into something that makes merry, that lifts the heart, that is freeing to some extent, that's enjoyable, that's good. Jesus is changing things. And I think there's some symbolism here of the old ways, of this old water now becomes this new wine. And he also uses the illustration of the new wineskins along this very same line, I believe. And then you have the best for last. So what was before, I mean, Moses was good. The laws of Moses were wonderful. We're told how great they are. The Bible speaks of how wonderful they are. The psalmist prays the laws. Of, I mean, the longest chapter in our Bible is all about how wonderful the law is. Psalm 119. But the server, again, this <laughs> he's saying more than I think he realizes he's saying for our benefit. He saved the best to last. All God gave us was good. But when he gives us in Jesus... You can't beat. He has saved the best for last. Even if the people reject him, as we looked at last week in the prologue, Jesus came into his own and his own did not receive him. But he didn't, they didn't receive him because he wasn't good enough, because he was too good to even appreciate. He was so amazing. Because God did truly save the best for last. And Jesus is and always has been and forever will be the best. And this miracle, this sign, points to that. And then, what happens immediately after this amazing miracle? Famous miracle? Cleansing of the temple. And they're connected. I think they're connected. That he takes this water, these traditions that they've had, and he makes something new. Make something better? Well, he goes into this temple, bogged down with all these same traditions, even more so. And a matter of fact, they've turned it into a marketplace. Let's read about it. John 2, 12 through 22. So the first miracle, wedding Cana, that's verse 11. Verse 12 jumps right into the cleansing of the temple. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Now the Jewish feast of Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple courts those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting at the tables. Again, these are the traditions that have just kind of developed over time of how they do church. And Jesus is livid, as he should be. So he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple courts with the sheep and the oxen. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold the doves, he said, Take these things away from here. Do not make my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will devour me or consume me. So then the Jewish leaders responded, what right do you have to do this? I mean, if you came up and flipped over this table right here, you would get some crossways looks. 
obviously. And our first response would be, who do you think you are? That's what they tell Jesus. And they ask, what sign? This book's all about signs. He just did one, as a matter of fact. What sign can you show us since you're doing these things? If you're going to do the, follow it up, prove that you've got the authority. Not just anybody should go into temples and start flipping tables, especially the temple of God in Jerusalem. If you think you've got the, the, the authority to do this, back it up. Show us a sign. Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Then the Jewish leader said to him, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you're going to raise it up in three days? He's talking nonsense to them. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So after he was raised from the dead, three days... His disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the saying that Jesus had spoken. John shows us the signs of Jesus that point the way. But several times in the Gospel of John, people ask for a sign and Jesus gets on to them. Because they're shallow. Here they are asking for a sign. Prove to us that you can do this. Show us a sign. Show us a miracle. If you think you've got authority, prove it. The Son of God doesn't need to prove anything. He'll gladly do signs, especially as we move through the Gospel of John, that do reveal just how amazing and unbelievable in some ways he is. He's going to blow our minds. But it's a faithless person who says, show me a sign. Whenever we've already got a sign. And we're going to have more before we're done. We're going to have more than we could ask, want, or need. And the same ones who say, show them a sign now because they're upset with the temple. They're going to see signs later on. And they're going to ignore them. Because it's a matter of having the heart and the eyes to see the sign. And even something as simple as water to wine. You know, this isn't the biggest miracle Jesus ever did. He's going to do some much, much bigger ones. And it's simple. But it's meaningful. I believe there's some symbolism here. And it points us to who God is. And they couldn't handle Jesus showing them, confronting them about their temple worship, about those traditions and those unholy things they had added onto God's wonderful law and to the wonderful place of worship as it was intended to be. But Jesus, he's coming and he's changing things and he's pointing to something much, much better. And he even spells it out here in this very beginning instance in the Gospel of John. Destroy this temple and I'll build it back in three days. And they didn't understand. A common theme in the Gospel of John is people don't understand. Nicodemus didn't understand Jesus and most of the disciples don't understand Jesus. Everybody walks around kind of not knowing what's going on in the Gospel of John except Jesus. But we're kind of given the, the you know, that 
third-person view of we get to see what's going on. We get a privileged seat, but everybody else is confused. And all the while, pointing the way to whenever they do destroy that body, so to speak, and he does rebuild it in three days. He comes back, and that's the sign that matters most. That's that final sign to which the rest of the book is pointing. And we got to put our faith in it. That's what the disciples did after the water of the wine. They put their faith in Jesus. They believed on him from that point on. That's what we do. And we'll see other signs coming up. But I hope every time our response is we believe on him. We trust him and we see where he's pointing and put our faith ultimately in his death, burial, and resurrection.